the sector has been infested by new parasites registering charities with no values. And I told him, if you don't say something good about us, I will ask Hosni Mubarak to stop the Nile flowing to Sudan. <laughs> so that's why, from the very beginning, I did not ask as a doctor, my, I didn't ask myself to have the luxury or luxurious life. Very simple life. Because I was preparing myself one day to go back to Egypt. And if I live at this standard here in UK, then I go to Egypt to live in this standard, it would be a shock for me. That's why my first car, I bought it in the 90s, in the mid-90s. It was second-hand cars. I think I'm not sure if it's a Datsun or something like this. I said firmly and clearly, there's nothing without admin cost. Nothing. Whoever tells you zero admin, he is a liar. Unless he or she declares where they get the admin cost from. Whether it's a donation, should have been declared. Whether it's gift aid, should have been declared. Whether actually it is waqf, has, been, has to be declared. Nothing on earth called zero percent admin cost. And this becomes like a trend nowadays. Lobby all the ambassadors. But the three Arabs, unfortunately, were not very hospitable at that time. What I'm saying in this fight of this one week, who we produced everything that you can think about. Yeah, you could have been like anybody else. Yeah. Why should you be like anybody else? Be like yourself. What, what makes it's, you It's laugh? a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I've never, I never been trained in a, in a school to make jokes. Most of my jokes are silly ones. <laughs> but sometimes I crack English jokes. People with English don't understand it. and welcome back to the Muslim-centric podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life and I'm your host Oman. So Dr. Hani Al-Bana is a real legend on a global scale. He's the founder of Islamic Relief, one of the pioneering Muslim charities in the West. It all started in the 1980s in Birmingham, UK from a small donation and now his offices across the world. In this episode we dig deep to hear about Dr. Hani's origins in Egypt his life as a medical doctor in the UK, and the process that led to him starting Islamic Relief. I asked him about his views of the current charity sector with the proliferation of Muslim charities and asked him whether many charities have lost their ethical compass. I was fascinated by his decision to eventually leave the organization he founded, something we rarely see with political leaders and CEOs of companies. The interview was recorded during Dr. Hani's visit to Glasgow, Scotland, as part of a film festival showing a documentary about his life. It really is a must-watch film, very poignant at times, and I'll post a link to it in the episode notes. So remember, please do support the podcast by subscribing to our YouTube channel, leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, and spreading the word to friends and family.
Inshallah, it will help others benefit from the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Hani. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, you're in Glasgow because there was a film being shown last night about your life, uh, a documentary, and I'll post the details of that film um, in the episode notes. But you, can I take you back a little bit around to your early life and childhood? And what was your home environment like growing up? What are your memories of your early life? Uh, my home environment was very rich in culture, very rich in social work and meeting, and in theology. Because uh, home was divided between my so the social activities of my mother and uh, the religious uh, theology discussion or theological discussion of my father. So we were receiving sheikhs and ulama on one side to sit down with my father and discuss issues and we were receiving neighbors, relatives who got problems at that time and my mother was hosting them in the house on the flat at that time. Okay. Um, was it quite a religious upbringing? It is uh, not 100% religious, but conservative, as you call it, because the strongest element of it was the family bonding to the extended family, whether towards my father's family or my mother's family or to other families as well. And this enshrine any young individual with a very strong, uh, conducive a culture to understand how he or she, as a young uh, child, will be able to deal with this complex structure of visitors, of relatives, of friends coming to the house to take advice from either my father or from my mother. And do you think there were signs even back then of you having some sort of vision, some sort of activity, being that leader that you became later on in life? Let me, to be very honest, I have been born, I've not been born <clears throat> a genius individual, talented individual, or pioneering individual. I was like any other child playing in the street with uh, what you call uh, socks football. Or, or yep. you know, we used to put the sponge in the socks and uh, tie it and make make the ball. Uh, uh, I used to go to school to like anybody else. Uh, watch go to cinema and uh, travel with my family to Alexandria during summer. So normal life, I don't think it has something outstanding, which I say, wow, mm -hmm. I don't have the wow in my childhood or even in my teen or even in my adulthood. Yeah. And how do you think your early experiences shaped you to become the person you became? It is a family culture. And uh, you see the climate inside the family allowed this tree, which is myself, 
to have deep roots to the values, to the moralities, to the social work, to the connection with neighbors, with relatives, and to understand the social life at its primitive stage. And from there, you can, this will help you to develop it at a later stage. Like I remember seeing the first Khoja uh, from Iran coming to our house in the 70s to ask my father about some religious opinion coming from Qum. That means that my father taught us two things. First, inclusivity. Uh, second is bridging the gap between us as a family or us as a group or us as an organization and others. This is the first one. The second one, we had a Christian doctor married to an army officer who's Christian. My father used to visit them quite often and used to come back to, to visit us during Eid and Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. This kind of bridging the gap between our faith and people of other faith. It happened when I was young. So when you see something like this happening in your, in your, in your family, you see what your mother doing to the neighbors and to the family and relatives. You see your father bridging the gap with the Shia and with, as with the Christian. And this gives you a dimension nowadays of what we are doing with Muslim Charities Forum, the Humanitarian Forum, and even the neutrality I was talking to you about it, and the impartiality of the Muslim sector. So do you, do you have happy memories of your childhood? Was it quite a stable upbringing? It's very stable and very happy. Yeah, I was the baby of the family. Uh, once upon a time, I went to watch uh, Mother India, the great movie called Mother India. I, I the Bollywood it. film? This before Bollywood. Before Bollywood. Oh, no, this was epic. This was in the 50s. I think at the time I was eight or nine. And uh, I went, I have two pence to go to the third class in the cinema. And when you are there, you can keep watching uh, the movie as much as you want. I slept <laughs> at that time. It's a very famous story. And I wake up after midnight because uh, the cleaner or the security want to kick me out. Class finished, movie is finished. I went out disoriented, middle of the night. There was no lights in the street at that time. I didn't know where to go. I completely, I was at loss. So I came out from the cinema nearly blind or blinded. I was bewildered. Luckily, when I was in this situation, Somebody was passing by and look at me and she said, oh my God, this child at 12 o'clock at night, which was very late in the 50s, to find somebody walking in the street 12 o'clock plus at night, said, young boy, boy, my child or my son, who are you? I said, I can't find my house. I said, what's your name? I said, my name is uh, Hani. I said, what's your father's name? He was a, one of the sheikhs. 
Said Abdul Jawad al-Banna. Said yes, Sheikh Abdul Jawad, come, I take you to the house. Allah has sent him to be, yeah. because of the amal of my mother and my father. Otherwise, could be lost, mm. picked up by groups. But here, actually, the whole family was on their feet because 12 o'clock at night, during the 50s, it is incredible. Yeah. I went to the house. And the man brought me to the house, and uh, I found this full of relatives and friends. Everybody was going right, left, and center to find me out. And I was not beaten by my by my father or by my mother. I went to sleep. And when I was asked next day, I said I wanted to watch Mother India two three times. I paid two pence to keep watching it. <laughs> Depends at yeah. the time was like, uh, you know, the, the daily allowance yes. could have been one pence a day with a two, two, for two days. <laughs> so I can't afford just yeah. uh, to not to rewatch, not to rewatch, uh, watch again and again the Mother India. And I, it's changed so much now, isn't it? Because everyone's so contactable on their phones and you can WhatsApp and you can give your location and mm. with your children. And in those days, you know... There was no light in the street. If the child doesn't come home, then obviously yeah. parents will think the worst. But you must have been quite clever. I guess you you end up, ended up in medical school and trained as a doctor. So I wouldn't... Were you always quite bright? I wouldn't say about myself as a clever man. Or a clever child. I was and I am an average who was hard worker. Okay. When you ha- work hard, you compensate your lower level of intellectual capability. Because in the good old days, we used to study average, especially when I was in secondary school, setting my A level, 15 hours a day. Hmm. And you can rehearsing all the books, all the subjects. So this is not a sign of being clever, but the sign of being dedicated to understand and to achieve. I got good marks when I was in the primary school, which is nearly 90%. When I was in the preparatory school, I got about 65%. When I was in secondary school to go to the medical uh, uh, school, I got 70% because it was becoming more difficult. But the same style, work like a donkey. Okay. So from an early age, it was you you were putting in a lot of that effort and that dedication. Because I guess some people naturally don't need to spend much time and are very bright and get through it. You know, I know people that have gone through medical school and they haven't needed to put in much work and they just Mm. almost have like a photographic memory. And I did not go to the top medical school in Egypt. Okay. I went to Al-Azhar was 70% because the top medical school in Egypt at that time used to take about 85 or 90%. Okay. But and luckily the, I got it. And there's no expectation for you to go down a similar path t- as your father in terms of my father scholarship or anything like that? Yeah, my father wanted me to become a sheikh like him. Um, there was a struggle in the house because my father always wants us to become sheikhs because all my father's family are qualified from Al-Azhar. My grandfather who is buried in Al-Baqiya in Medina. He is Azhari, Alim. My three uncles and my father. But my father carried on to do his uh, ijazah 
Then after Ijaza, Takhassus, which is like PhD, 1935-1937. Then he became a teacher or a professor of Islamic theology in Al-Azhar University later on. And he was teaching in Al-Azhar. Okay. Were there many other doctors in the family? Uh, not, in my, not in my close family. Uh, my sister, the elder one, was a manager, top manager in uh, Cairo University. My second sister was a housewife. She's qualified also from university. And my brother was also qualified from the same school of art in uh, in, in Cairo. But in uh, my relatives, some of them are doctors, some of them are engineers, some of them are uh, dentists. And it's all, okay. all over. And one thing that struck me in the documentary that we watched was you spoke about three life decisions um, that were really significant in your life. So mm. you left Cairo in 1977, so you would have been about 27 at that age. That's right, yeah. And then you left medicine in 1995 to okay. become full-time in terms of Islamic relief. And you were age 45 around that time. And then you left Islamic relief in 2008, so you would have been about 58. Mm. So you seem to have taken big risks uh, to make these big life-changing decisions at crucial times in your life, you know, in your 20s, in your 40s, and then in your 50s, so probably stages where you either had a young family or, you know, in your 40s, you know, the careers and income and things would have been really significant factors. Mm. Tell us a bit about how you made those decisions and also the courage to make these big decisions because often... These are the things that would hold people back. They'd say, look, I have to think about a mortgage. I have to think about my family. I have to think about my income. And yet at these critical times, because you could have said, wait till I'm a doctor. You know, I've got a good income. Then I'll do my charity work when I'm in my 40s. Mm. But you made these big decisions. So tell us a bit about how did you come to these decisions? There, there was a preparation for it. The first preparation was when my father got a contract to work in the Islamic University in Libya, in Al-Beda. <coughs> I was sent with him to start to taste the life of being uh, uh, in a foreign country. This was at the age of 16. So it was my father and myself only. My father, during this time, uh, became sick. And he sat me down and told me, if I die, this is the money go back, go to this sheikh. He will sort out your ticket to go back to Cairo and sort out selling the furniture. And you bury me here in Benghazi, Libya. This was the first responsibility given to me when I was 16. <clears throat> the second one, I was in a love story with one of my neighbors. And through a love story, okay, and I was visiting their house quite often to teach her, to teach others when I was in the medical school with the permission of the parents. It came a time that the mother and the father of the girl told me to engage her because you are coming now, you have to have something legal. I told my mother about this and my father. At that time, I was in the third year of the medical school. My mother told me, you are 30 years, how are you going to get engaged? I said, 
let us respond to the needs of the family because they are protecting the dignity of their daughter. And everybody in the street or in the area knows that we are in love. But when my mother went against her will, she was told by the mother of the, of the other family, oh, he still let him come back after he finishes his degree. My mother came back extremely upset. And I was very upset because I can see her dignity was reduced to the ground. I took a decision which was very hard at the age of 22 of ending this relationship with one letter sent to the young girl which she, she has nothing to do with what happened. So the girl, she was yani, very decent. Everything was good in her. So she should not have been punished this way. She didn't marry for about four years. And being young, middle class, attractive, and decent, many people came to her. She refused. Then one day somebody came and her mother told her, you have to marry, but Allah's finished. Forget about honey. The mother came to my auntie. Tell her, my daughter is still waiting for your uh, nephew. My, my auntie came and told me, honey, and the family loves you, and, 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 and. I said, no. I said, why? I said, because our family is going to mix with this family. And if the mother did that to my mother, there'll be a quarrel every day. I was still in love with the young girl, but I have to take this difficult decision because I knew that if I went behind my emotion, I will have a problem between the two mothers, different characters altogether. And this was very difficult for me to do at the age of 22, 23. So the preparation started at the age of 16, the most difficult one at the age of 22, then the three others, as you have seen them. Mm. And what would you say to people that are scared to make these decisions in life? Sometimes um, it seems too overwhelming for somebody to make these career, you know, maybe they're not unhappy in their job or they're unhappy in their situation, but they don't, they're just too frightened to make the jump and make the change. If you are frightened, that means that you all the time will look back at the shadow behind you because you feel that somebody is observing you, somebody is following you, somebody is, and you have to take the risk whether you fail or succeed. You didn't think that with this decision and the others, when I came here to do the trap or the plab at that time, I failed five times, five times, badly. But I kept trying, 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 trying. And the last time when I, when I passed, it was a time when I had no money, khalas, finished. And when I went to see, I came here to Glasgow to make an interview with the head of the, uh, in Belvedere Hospital, there was an institute of radiotherapy medical oncology. And they traveled all the way, tried to find accommodation, tried to promote myself. And when I sat down with the man, he told me, honey, because he liked my character. 
whether you fail or pass. Please write to me. Because when he sat down, he found that all my failures did not stop me from trying. Mm. And when I passed, he responded back to me, telling me there's a job coming at British Medical Journal, go and apply. And I got the job. And, and people often talk about failures, and, and you uh, yesterday, because there's a question and answer after the film as well, you said that you, you've had failures in your life. Many. And people, I guess, externally would see, actually, this is Dr. Hani, who's founded Islamic Relief. He's a pioneer of, you know, Muslim charities and Islamic charities, not just in the UK, but across the world. He's affected millions. Yeah. So people would find it hard to think that you're, you would describe yourself as I tell having you, failures a, a, or... A practical failure. Okay. Happened. Very practical. I was... A very strong character, strong head at that time, and scary. Yes is yes, and no is no. That's it. You like it or not, if you don't like it, get out. This was when I started Islamic leave. That's why sometimes people were a little bit scared of me. That was in the 80s. So you're talking about That's, in your yeah, time in Islamic Relief? In, in, yeah, in, in the, till the mid-90s. Because in the 80s, was no organization. Yeah. In the 90s, there was structured organization and building and stuff. And uh, we did not have a proper accounting department or finance department. We used to spend, yeah, take 100,000 here, 50,000 here, without knowing that is this money is tagged to something else or not. One day, that we wake up and we discover they don't have enough cash because the money has been overspent actually differently. Who is responsible for this? It's me. The organization as a board of management sat down to try to sort out this problem. And we decided that there's a, a mistake, a failure on the CEO at that time but let us find the solution. So the decision was not to throw the CEO or the president at the times myself, but actually to build around him very strong finance and accounting department. And this way we started to invest heavily in accounting department, finance department, uh, quality control and all these sort of things, internal auditing and external auditing. This is 1995. In other organization, the trustees could have sacked instantly, but because of the trust and the credibility of the individual and the trust of the trustee, and the individual said, okay, give him a chance and see how it's going to happen. I failed and they made it as a story in my talks. Even as I mentioned yesterday, this was one of my awrat, one of my yani, mistakes. None of us uh, is just born an achiever. Even the Prophet without making any comparison, used to consult his companions and his companions used to ask him, is this your decision, Prophet Muhammad or this is from Allah. If it's your decision, please, I've got different opinion. If it's from Allah, khalas finished. 
if it's his decision, they will try to negotiate with the Prophet At that time, I was one of the people who could have risked Islamic leave for a closure down, unfortunately. And I'm saying it many times for the young people and the other to say that nothing is a pioneer. No one is a pioneering is coming after hard work. If you want to win the Nobel Peace Prize in chemistry, in mathematics, in geometry, in geography, you have to experiment or try thousands and thousands of times to produce something which has not been done before. That does not mean that you are a pioneer or you are a genius. Your geniusness is in your persistence in your dedication and commitment and trying and trying and trying. See, if you are in the football, if you keep kicking the ball to the box, you will score. If you keep making some fantastic uh, run here and there and uh, and the spectator will, will clap and say, yes, he's a brilliant man and he's a brilliant player and no score. So he'll be defeated. Okay. Now, moving on to when you started Islamic Relief uh, back in 1980s in Birmingham, um, now you, you're you seen as one of, obviously, the pioneers in terms of one of the early people in terms of um, starting with some charities in the UK, if not around the world. What are your kind of happiest memories of those early days? The happiest memory is door-to-door distribution of leaflets, standing in front of the mosque, to be the first one in UK, holding box for donation. This was the happiest memory, which you will never see it nowadays. Uh, people sometimes look at it as yani, very... Uh, uh, less meaningful job to be done by somebody. I went down and there was a medical doctor mm. and I was employed by the National Health Service. I want to go, I used to go to the hospital in the morning and do this in the afternoon or in the evening. So this is the happiest moment. The happiest moment is in August 1984 when we received the first a uh, big check of £1,000 from a colleague of mine who was an ophthalmologist, eye doctor. And me and Dr. Ihsan, who was doing his PhD in chemistry in Birmingham University, said, Narai Takbir, Allahu Akbar, this is not only £1,000. I remember this day. This is one billion pound. And now Islamic Leaf has crossed spending the billion pound over the last 30, 40 years. But this happened, actually, this was the happiest moment. The happiest moment when you go to the mosque, especially in the good old days, most of the people in the mosque are Asian, Pakistani. They don't understand what you're talking about. They keep sitting, taking interest in listening to you. Don't understand uh, any word. Then they give you the money. (laughs) <laughs> to the brothers. Did you understand English? He said, no, they don't understand English. He said, why do you pay the money? Because they want to pay the money. Yeah. And they took the money, half a penny, a penny, 
two penny, five penny, ten penny, and, 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 all this. That's why we used to get out of the mosque a lot of coins at the good old days. These are the happiest yeah. days. And, and and in those early days, what was it that kept you going? Because people can sometimes have an idea, but then it starts getting difficult. Um, was it your friends? Was it the brotherhood? Was it the team around you? Or was it some other drive? When you know, Because normally you start an idea, you build it, and then you know, maybe when it starts getting difficult, you think, actually, is this the right thing to have done? Should I just stop? Um, what got you through or what kept you going? Especially when you're starting something new. I think if you keep yourself busy working, you don't think much about becoming tired. You see, I remember Muhammad Ali, Clay, he, I don't know how many time, how many hours he used to run every day for his uh, championship. Others, like players here and there and here and there. The difference between Muhammad Ali, who won the title three times, losing it and yani, failed and succeeded, failed and succeeded. That's why he's, he was a king. I was the greatest. Is his hard work. He was focusing on becoming the best or the greatest. And he became, actually, he was not distracted by the media, negative or positive, by the amount of money that he is making out of it. No. See, if you look at somebody like Mike Tyson, he was distracted. Despite the fact he was more fierce fighter than Muhammad Ali, but he was distracted by the names, by the negative media. That's why he could not be able to make the history like Muhammad Ali made the history and force people to listen to him. So if you are in a job, focus on the delivery. And then look at the delivery, the product. Once you see the machine is producing product, you have to improve the quality. If you become focusing on something else, you will never score the goal. You will never win the World Cup. You will never become the heavyweight champion. You will never. Also around that time, I mean, how did you make the decision or in terms of the financial impact it would have leaving your career in medicine yes. or cutting down and moving to this charities, which there was no precedence for that really. I mean, the A, there was a, that uncertainty. Secondly, would be, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going yeah. to raise the children? How did you make peace with that idea that actually, what am I going to do financially to survive? Well, we learned since I was in Egypt, and even with my wife, to live and to meet the unexpected circumstances. So that's why, from the very beginning, I did not ask as a doctor, my, I didn't ask myself to have the luxury or luxurious life. Very simple life. Because I was preparing myself one day to go back to Egypt. And if I live at this standard here in UK, then I go to Egypt to live in this standard, it would be a shock for me. That's why my first car, I bought it 
in the 90s, in the mid-90s. It was second-hand cars. I think I'm not sure if it's a Datsun or something like this. And even I failed to drive it because <laughs> I didn't know how to use the manual. Till I said, and one of the brothers actually advised me to buy uh, automatic car to make life easy for myself. So from the very beginning, I was lowering the standard of life of my family. And it went up, up, up with the time. So, yes, I could not be able to take the same income, but we were happy. And, and the other kind of layer to this is obviously you're a migrant to this country? No, not a migrant. I came as a student. Okay, so you immigrated to this country? I traveled to this country to finish my study. Okay. What's, so I'm, what, not, not, I'm not a migrant. You see, a migrant... What's, what's the difference? Because I guess when we talk about our, you know, I, I'm of Pakistani heritage, you know, yeah, our yeah. F- fathers and, and parents came as, we would say, as immigrants, whether well, it's economic yeah, immigrants yeah, they, or whatever. They can call it immigrant, but actually uh, seeking job. Because I came here to do my study. I never thought that I'm going to stay for 45 years. So that's what I was going to ask you is that how long were you planning to come for and, and at what stage did you realize I'm not going back? I uh, was planning to come here for maybe a few years, three to five years, to get my membership, then go back because I have my own residence, I've got my own clinic, and uh, I've got my own family, which... Uh, I didn't need to work in UK, so why should I leave my family and my country and stay here? So I was not planning to live here. Uh, even I was proposing uh, a young medical Egyptian medical doctor. Both of us agreed. We were very happy. The father agreed. Alhamdulillah. The, the young girl was very decent. Yani, subhanallah. But I did mention one thing which made her mother furious. I said, I'm going to leave in a few years' time. I'm not going to stay in this country. The mother blocked the marriage. I looked at it later on as a positive way because Allah was preparing for me to marry my current wife, which was not exactly like uh, this young girl. At that time, so even at that time, in the, I think, uh, in the 80s, for Islamic leave, I was still thinking seriously to go back. But after that, even I went in 1989 to Egypt, after Islamic leave started, it was very small. So I had enough. Don't want my PhD, my MD, my Islamic leave. And uh, they appointed somebody else to take over. I went, as I mentioned yesterday, to find the land. I don't know why I loved, I said loving farming, animals, greenery, and crops, and others. And I stayed there in a long holiday to find this land. Because you wanted to go back and... I want to go back and class, forget about medicine. I want to become a farmer. Yeah. Actually, then I failed to find this land. And one of my colleagues said, Honey, why don't you go and finish your study and come as, as a farmer with a doctorate in your hand? 
So I came back and the change happened. Islamic Cliff grew up. It came the flooding in Sudan, the earthquake in Iran, the war in Bosnia, the monsoon in Bangladesh. Khalas, you went through the machine, couldn't be able to come out because you are driving the driving wheel. When did you realize or decide, actually, I'm staying now in the UK, I'm staying in Birmingham, this is my home now? I didn't think about it this way. But when you become busy doing things, you find that the time passed. Like the year passed like an hour or like a day or like a minute. I found after all this, oh my God, I've been here for 25 years. Still here. What's next? How's finished? There's nothing. Even I tried after finishing my PhD, my, my doctor of medicine, my father, my brother-in-law was trying to get me a job in one of the institute of research. It didn't work. It didn't work. Okay. One of the things in the early days of Islamic Relief is you were trying to get recognized at a higher level um, and with the United Nations, etc. And you spoke about the Muslim countries, the Muslims didn't really help you as, as Islamic Relief. The Muslim Relief. ambassadors. Yeah. Ambassadors. The Arab ambassadors. Arab, sorry. Um, but the Irish helped you at that That's time. Right, yeah. What do you make of that in terms of were you really disappointed or because I guess that is at so many levels that sometimes yeah. the Muslim communities, you know, we will think that the Muslims don't help ourselves and sometimes we're our own worst element enemies pulling each other down. Um what did that teach you at that time yeah. and was that a surprise? This to you? was at the ninety three. There's two elements of this. First of all, we started 84, January 1784. We have official registration in 1989. But you see, from the very beginning, our eyes were on, focusing on UN, have to be in the kitchen, in the decision-making kitchen, when we were just little organization, even not infant, maybe suckling baby. This was actually the vision. That's why we started this process, 1991 and two, to communicate with the United Nations to have the registration. At that time, my name is Elbanna. My beard is long. And the organization called Islamic Relief. There was not, Islamophobia is not, was not as bad as it's today, because this was before September the 11th. But still, this kind of unease, very uneasy to deal with Muslim charities. One of them told me categorically, we cannot get you to be registered at the ECOSOC because of your name, Islamic Leaf. So this was a Arab, Arab. Arab country. So what do you want me to do? Even this could have been their own decision. Not the government decision. The second one told me, oh my God, you you have been dealing with an organization which could be Hezbollah in Iran. I said, what? They were trying to interpret the CV of Islamic League the way their uh, countries uh, can see it politically. 
if you are in, in a war with Iran, so organization called so and so, it has a link with Iran. If your name is Islamic, you can't. Even the French, you know what he told me? Go to Saudi Arabia. I said, no, I have, no, I have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. I said, what? You are, are you the Islamic League of Saudi Arabia? I said, no. I came here as Kazakh. I went around to lobby all the ambassadors. But the three Arabs, unfortunately, were not very hospitable at that time. What I'm saying in this fight of this one week, who produced everything that you can think about. I was in New York and the office in, in Birmingham, five hour time difference. All the reports come to me five hours before the meeting, okay, on the table. So during that time, it was the last two days of Eid, okay, or three days of Eid, uh, of Ramadan, sorry, and uh, at that time. All the information coming to me, copy it, photocopy it, put it on the table of every ambassador. So I shut them up. That's why the Irish ambassador, he has facts in his hands. That's why he stood up strongly, saying, no, those people produced A, B, C. Even after that, the Sudanese ambassador came and he became friendly with me. And he was, bismillah, mashallah, two, three meters high. <laughs> you see, uh, tall, not high, sorry, tall. And I told him, if you don't say something good about us, I will ask Hosni Mubarak to stop the Nile flowing to Sudan. <laughs> and he was laughing. On that day, which is a good Friday for me, I went up to the stage without any permission. You can imagine. You are in a this big hall with maybe 20, 30, 40 ambassadors and this individual, myself, arguing with the chairwoman. I'm not going to sit down. I've been here. What are you doing? Why you are not making a decision? Who are you? Who are you? Because the Sudanese as well told me that they got to put Islamic on a roster status for two years. When he told me this on Friday, I said, what? Then I went straight to the stage and took the microphone. I said, I'm not going to come down. You make a decision. Don't play with me. That's why where the Irish came, and, and it was this Friday, and the Irish said, okay, we'll give, because what, there was one of the ambassadors who was blocking the registration, and in this uh, committee, you have to have a consensus of everybody. Said, okay, we'll let our friend, our colleague, to read the documents of Islamic Leaf. On Monday, Islamic Leaf should be the first to be discussed, save the money of the charge because this man has been here with his colleague for a year not for a week at that time you know how much was the room 70 dollars a day a room which is half of this room and you go to your bed as a single bed and sideways and 70 dollars was too much for us and the man said that on the monday morning the chairperson of the meeting announced our name three times and accepted the registry. But it was a fight. 
after putting all the documentation and the facts and the figures on the table, after answering all the questions. So what else you want? And do you think you've always had that skill of knowing when to fight or when to back off? Because people might have said, you know, don't get confrontational, come back later next year or come back and, you know, but you thought, you know, you took the mic, you said, I'm, you know, yes, you're angry. So that's a skill, I think, because it's, it's a, sometimes it could have back it could have backfired on you. It depends. It will never backfire at you if you've done your homework first. I think I was so confident at that time of being advised by one of our colleagues in the meeting saying, "Go and make lobbying. Go and talk to all the ambassadors. Introduce Islamic Rift to everybody." So my few days, I talked to about ten, fifteen ambassadors at least putting the figures and the facts on the table. This convinces some of them, but none of them want to take the shot. The one who took the shot was the Irish, because his background is different. Then the Sudanese, on, on Monday after the Irish uh, make the first shot on Friday afternoon. And this is one thing that you've always kind of seems to have pushed, because you also in terms of mainstreaming Islamic relief, you know, and one of the early people or one of the early charities to start working with non-Muslim charities and getting on the Disasters Emergency Committee and stuff. So, again, that well, that was a step change, wasn't it, in terms yeah. of, because as Muslims, sometimes we'll become very insular and say, just focus on ourselves. So, what were you thinking? Like, how have you, what were you, from the, very the bigger picture? From the very beginning, when we started organizing the first uh, conference or the first workshop to train Islamic Relief staff in 1991, we invited two organizations, Oxfam, to talk about the child shops, and Red Cross, British Red Cross, to give it the international dimension. From the very beginning, we had this vision of bridging out. Even used to have a theology, the bridge has to be built from both sides. Same material, not from one side only. This was more than 30 years ago. This was actually uh, from the very beginning. That's why we reached out to churches, to international organizations, to government offices, and to build this relationship. Even DEC, be very honest. I was involved. I was uh, visited by the previous CEO who came to Islamic Relief, I think, 2000 or 2001, 2002, to introduce DAC. You know, you know what I said? What's DAC? I was stupid. I know. They came to you? Yeah. And said, we want Islamic Relief to join us. We want Muslim Church to be with us. Because they saw our performance before and after September the 11th or at that time, and they've been observing us as Claire Short was talking here, and they've been asking questions about us in, in our absence. And then we joined them. Then CAFOD took our share and gave it to us because we're not registered officially yet. But they came to us. They came to us because we became, during September 11th, Take it 
or leave it. We said we are a part of the Muslim community in the West and the East. We're not going to lower our head down. No way. That's why we're saved. See, Panorama came, CNN came, ITV came, and all those came. Because we're not hiding. We're not scared. Uh, if you interview somebody like Harun, Atallah, or Nasr, as he said yesterday, Nasser told you that uh, the British government gave us 25% of the budget for Afghanistan at that time, and the other 75% were given to another nine organizations. And we were the only Muslim ones. We did not close our office in Afghanistan. Sakandra Ali was in the mid-20s. And he came back to report to the upper house and lower house about the only British charity functioning in Afghanistan. He was reporting about the humanitarian situation of the Afghan people. This was in November 2001. That's why Prince Charles came, and that's why OBE came to me later on, and, 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 and all these sort of things. You've always been somebody who has been very keen to take people out in the field. Yes. Um, people that I know that work for Islamic Relief, you know, one of the things they always, talk, you know, one of the first things they tend to do is either yeah. they've travelled with you or they've, you know, they've been to the ground. Now, we know that journalists and doctors who work in war zones or conflict zones, you know, they can f experience trauma and yes. features of things like post-traumatic stress and, you know, you can see a lot of things that are very harrowing and very difficult um, you've been to so many disaster zones, so many conflict areas, you've probably seen so many things. Do you have images that ha have haunted you or how have you coped with what you've seen? Because for any normal person, even seeing something once or twice can be difficult and you've, you know, over the years, over the decades, have seen so much. Have you? How have you coped with that side of the emotions and the trauma and... Because I think one of the things is not just seeing it, but then leaving. Yeah. And when you come back into the UK, life is very different and very peace and calmful, yeah. and you've just gone from one zone to another. How, what effect has that had on you, and how have you coped with that? I looked at it as a motivation to do work with my, with my colleague, to do work, all of us, to help those people. I give you the example. Um, 2003, we decided to go to South Sudan. And uh, we did not know that Sudan has two Souths, one in Nevasha in Kenya, run from the SPLA or SPLM. The second one is from Khartoum, run by the Sudanese government. To go to both sides, I have to take a permission from the government in Khartoum tell them that I'm going to the other side, I said, go, go to them, they are our brothers. When, uh, when I went with my, with my colleague there, I think Wasim Yaqub was with me and some other people came with me as well. There was no, the only flight, you have to charter flight. The situation of the non-Muslim South Sudanese was incredible. Reminds you of the old movie, you know, Tarzan? Yeah. You see? Tarzan. Yeah, exactly. 
at that time. We looked at one another and we said, we have to do something. In spite of the fact we did not have fund, but we chartered planes. When we chartered plane, I think the first time was uh, in maybe July, June 2003. And we took the plane with us, cost about $20,000, $30,000, to go to the three provinces controlled by the North government. People looked at Islamic Cliff seriously. The, the, the president with delegation are coming. That means that those people are trying to do something serious. $30,000 investment brought $1 million. Because when we went to there, these areas, Juba, Wau, and Malakal, okay, UN said, okay, fine, we will work with Islamic Cliff because we know them and they are part of the ECOSAC. And the in-kind donation came later on more than $1 million. When I came back from the first journey to the office and was sitting in the room to create a budget for knowing the $1 million in-kind donation, I said, how much you want, Brother Salah? $100,000. You know what I told them? What? Ask for 300,000, not 100,000, because Salah did not see mm. the South Sudan. In the second trip, what to the South Sudan controlled by the rebels, uh, Sudanese People's Liberation Army. They welcomed us, said that you came late, but most welcome. We have to charter a plane every day, in and out. You can't just stay there and visit the other side of the coin. And this created a lot of big image of Islamic leaf. Here, when you are putting yourself inside this machine, focusing on the deliverable and seeing the suffering as a motivating tool to enable you to empower the people, you will never be psychologically upset. But even as a human seeing things, even when you close your eyes at night, you, you, you think about you must what? You, know, you must replay what you've seen. Yeah, the, I think the, the only faces, is the the, 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 the only uh, the only uh, the only problem or the only uh, disaster which affected me very much, make me very angry, is Bosnia. Because of the because of the organized government, the organized systematic government rape to young girls. Yeah. This was at, but actually, I was not broken. We were not broken. We have to focus on saving the lives of those people with little resources, and the resources came afterwards. Have you seen people that you worked with struggle with what they've seen? Yes. And what do you uh, say to them? You How do you help them? Don't don't keep promising anyone. Never promise anybody. Because sometimes young people as volunteers or coming to the getting excited. Yes, we're going to give you a plane here and there. Never promise anybody. Never give any promises. Said mm -hmm. we'll do our best to be with you. Okay. Are you 
an emotional person? Yes. In what way? Uh, sometimes you feel differently. Okay? When you look at something which you see, it from an angle which affects your emotion. You might see the same thing, but it might not affect you. Uh, yes, I am. Alhamdulillah. And, uh, but you have to control your emotion. And you have to be bold, sticky, uh, blunt, and patient. Because if you become emotional all the time, you will destroy everybody around you. And do you think you were born this way or you've no, learned these no. things? I learned. You've learned these things. Okay. So anybody could learn these things. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the most significant parts of your life was leaving Islamic Relief in 2008. Um, that must have been an incredibly difficult decision. Yes. Um, and often we hear even in companies, people that are the founders, they either stay or, you know, it's very different. Or I guess in organizations, sometimes you see people that stay too long and mm. committees and mosques <laughs> that are there for generations. But, you know, why did you decide to leave and how difficult a decision was it? I made the decision to leave because uh, from 2004, uh, we're starting to think something differently. Not the programmatic, not the fundraising, not the traditional. Which we started with the idea of building future generation, future leadership. Uh, the idea of connecting Muslim Shahs together, which became Muslim Shahs Forum later on. The idea is of bridging the gap between Muslims and non-Muslims after September the 11th. I found uh, at the time that Islamic Leaf cannot do all this because Islamic Leaf is an operational organization. An operational organization cannot, be, cannot, cannot claim that it can bring people together and lead because everybody will look at you. Yeah, you are benefiting. You are like us. That's why, uh, plus, um, I was exposed to very high-level meetings and a lot of initiatives, a lot of ideas, which no organization will take initiative from you every day. Even if you're a prophet, they will just run away from you. Okay, because they have to uh, understand the quality of the people and the speed of the response at that time. So what do you mean by that point? I mean that actually not because you are, as a leader, visionary, with these great ideas, that every day you bring a new idea to the table, to the machine, the machine has a capacity. But did you know that it had a capacity? I know, but did not. You won't, because you think about it from your own speed as an individual. But the organization has to think about it from its own speed as organization. And the organization's speed was slower than your speed? Of course. Speed. This is not, 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 not about myself. It's generally speaking. Yeah. If you won't run away by yourself, you can ride 200 miles an hour but you run away, uh, run alone. If you want to run with the organization, you have to reduce it. You have the impact, 50 miles or 60 miles an hour. And this is where I found that at that time, Islamic Leap become a very heavy machine and 
this is different initiative, so I have to take the risk. The risk here is in another risk for the income. I have to find somebody to sponsor my salary because at the age of 58, nobody will employ you, isn't it? But you could have been there for life, could I? I didn't want to be do that. Because nope, nobody would have. Yeah, you could have been like anybody else. Yeah. Why should you be like anybody else? Be like yourself. Because uh, if you have learned this 20 and during these 25 years, the way, if you knew the vision, you have a vision, if you knew what you want to do, you have to risk your income again at nearly the age of 58 or 59. And so, you know, Islamic Relief or other organization, you know, because of its growth, it did become a machine. It is. Like any organization that becomes big. And I guess one of the criticisms, even if you think of a small shop that becomes big chains or, That's the, right. you know, maybe it loses its early kind of character or kind of feel about it. Do you think that's just an innate part of becoming an organization that just becomes big? Um, and how do you deal, you know, how do people it, manage that or deal with that? Is that it's you just natural. have to accept it. Yeah. It's natural. But you have to build inside the organization the mechanisms which allow the traditional and the visionary to work together. Yeah, and when you become established organization, you become traditional. Because everything will be put on the conveyor belt every day. Everybody knows what. But at the same time, you have to have the vision of somebody leading to add the added value. Like you, you, you roast the turkey, but where is the recipe? Where is the added value of what you put with the turkey to make the turkey different, so it be more sellable? Or this year is a turkey, next year not turkey, big chicken. You understand? And this where, in this organization, uh, I produced, uh, not produced, I wrote. Uh, a review of the job description of every employee. 60 to 70 or 50 to 60% of the time of the CEO and the president has to be non-operational, non-managerial, reading, thinking, attending, communicating, writing, researching, because you are the front runner. You don't sit in an office and see people every day. Sometimes we don't differentiate between the word manager and director. And our directors and CEO are acting like managers, mm. unfortunately. So, and this time allowance should be given to every individual inside the organization, even to the cleaners. Go from 60% or 70% of the CEO to 10%. You, part of your promotion, or your KPI is 10% of your time to bring me a new idea every day as a cleaner, as security man, as guard, as a driver, as I'm a guard, as a guard man, yeah. as a driver, as, 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 as. You shouldn't be in the office just to become like a machine sitting on a machine. So it's having that, separating that time for strategy, for big, th That's you right. know, future thinking versus operational or executive yeah. level of I learned it from one of my colleagues who was in the movie yesterday in the film yesterday is Sir Nicholas Young 
So Nicholas Young was all the time, all over the place. But the look at British Red Cross. British Red Cross. Yeah. But behind him was a big machine. And used to go to defend the organization, to bring opportunities, to find new opportunities, to to talk about new ideas, to promote the organization, and all this sort of thing. This is his job. That's why at that time, in the nine and at the beginning of the two thousand, his salary was two hundred thousand pounds, and everybody was considering them because he is twenty four seven outside the office, was leaving his family behind. Yeah. One of the most poignant parts of the film that I found was the part with the map. Yes. Um, can you tell the listeners about this map? Because maps became very important for you throughout, you know, you know, different aspects when people were describing you. They spoke about this map, and then there was a scene in the film where you went into the office of Islamic Relief, and the map was covered. So just tell us about the map. Yeah, by the way, they removed everything now. They sent me a new photograph. Oh, the map is back? <laughs> the map is back. <laughs> so to explain, people that haven't seen the documentary, what was the significance about maps? Significance about map. And why we, what happened in the documentary that upset map you? Map is showing you the whole world from a spot, from a microscope. So I remember a discussion or an interview between Charles de Gaulle, the late president of France after the Second World War. And some of the news reporters said, talk about a problem, show me the map. Who are the neighbors? Or the regional power to make a decision? You can't just make a decision by sitting down and say, oh my, yes, oh yes, no. You have to have Afghanistan on the table, then a map of Afghanistan, huh? then a map of the countries surrounding Afghanistan. Because you, you would draw circles and That's say, right. I want an office there, I That's want a project right. there. And That's, then, right. okay. That's right. Without a map, to be very honest, you get nowhere. No way. And so part of that is when you were in Islam Relief, you had this big map on your office behind you. That's right. Um, and then you went to visit the office in the documentary. Yes. And where was the map? I was very upset because I found that the young people sitting in the room. Your old office. It was my old, this was half of my old office. Half of yours. My upset was on two levels. First of all, it was a big office with uh, solid furniture. They should have left it, not with the name of Hanil Banna. A meeting room. A meeting room to use it, actually. Or to be the CEO room, actually. Not to be just very humble. Oh, no, I want a small desk. No, no, a CEO has to have a, a desk and table, meeting table, because they have private meetings uh, and a lot of files. So they divided the room into two halves, which made me not happy. The furniture that we bought was uh, the furniture of the CEO of Shell Company. Shell Company. <laughs> we bought it for £3,000 because it was all oak, very heavy. Okay. Could have stayed for hundred years. Value for money. And they bought it for about three thousand pounds at that time. So I was a little bit upset that not not knowing the value of the furniture, not knowing the value of this meeting room. Because major decisions had been created. So the history and the heritage and this and one. What had Forget happened about in the, the individual. Yeah. Forget about it. And the last and not least, the map. Because those people, if they come to the room, they see the map. But the boss is putting the map behind him. 
That means that actually, fine, we're finished. You want to look at the map? Go look at the map to see where are we. But knowing that this world is a part of a greater universe that we need to discover later on. And then the documentary, they had put folders, yeah, cover, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bookcase of folders in covering the map. Yeah. And you became very upset. That's right. Okay. It came naturally. Yeah. Okay. Um, thinking a little bit around the wider Muslim charity sector beyond Islamic Reliefs, obviously a lot of charities grew up um, from that. Um now, the charities, Muslim charities, particularly in, in the UK and maybe around the world, they do a lot of positive work, but they've faced a lot of criticism over the last few years, particularly. And people feel maybe they're, um, whether it's fair or unfair, but there's a perception that they maybe they're a big marketing machine and that the money that people give doesn't get to the recipient and have the, the lost the kind of core ethics and values of what a charity should be. Um and then I've seen what happens as a result of that is people set up their own little initiatives, say, okay, I'll take money from friends, I'll go to Africa and I'll distribute it. Um, and then, they, you know, they create their own little charities as a result. You know, Ramadan is just back-to-back, -back you know, charity fundraisers and all these Islamic you know, channels, etc. How do you feel about where the sector has gone? Do you think it is a problem or... You know what can be done to address it. Do you think this is okay, or do you think this is an issue, and the charities need to make changes? First of all, the sector has been infested by new parasites registering charities with no values. So that's quite strong word. It's very strong. So words. can you explain what you mean by that? Okay. In the good old days, it was a handful or a dozen of organizations having this high level of commitment of incredible, dignified, value-based people, okay, from the organization. Because it was difficult to raise fund, very difficult to raise fund. It was difficult to raise, to reach people. It was difficult even to travel to those people who started the movement in UK, or in the West from the 80s. And uh, I can claim that UK is the leader, okay, of Muslim child sector globally, okay? So nowadays, some of those parasites trying to poison the atmosphere for the sake of raising fund. And uh, trying to, what do you call it, tarnish or blackmail organizations. I was in this process of blackmailing since I was in the 90s or the beginning of the 2000s. Oh, Islamic live spending money here and there. All right, I said firmly and clearly there's nothing without admin cost. Nothing. Whoever tells you zero admin, he is a liar. Unless he or she declares where they get the admin cost from. Whether it's a donation, should have been declared. Whether it's gift aid, should have been declared. 
whether actually it is waqf has, been, has to be declared. Nothing on earth called 0% admin cost. And this becomes like a trend nowadays. They moved from this level to the level of zakat is zero admin. Allah said, Al-Amrin alayha. Who are you? Ah, oh, because we have a different theology. Fine. Don't narrow what Allah said. You say that, okay, only the Khalifa will have the power to collect zakat. There's no Khalifa. What do you want me to do? Nowadays, as I speak to you, there was a recommendation from, to, to, from World Humanitarian Summit 2016 that UN raises the zakat fund from the Muslims and sadaqah from the Muslims. And they are raising hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And you are telling me, admin for zakat, non-admin for zakat, and somebody else is taking your money. Not only more you are United Nations, it's non-Muslim international humanitarian organization raising fund, proselytizing organization raising fund, taking zakat from Muslims. Ah, because Muslims cannot transfer the money here. Instead of sorting out your problem, becoming united, tell them enough is enough to the banks, enough is enough to the, uh, to, to the UN. You tell me, I am zero admin for zakat. I am zero admin for, what is this? Those kind of individuals, the least that we call them that they are ignorant, to be very nice to them, okay? But if somebody tells you zero admin, tell him, declare, Where you get, who, who's paying the salary, who's paying the electricity, who's paying the rate, who's paying all this kind of thing. So this is the most important thing, transparency, that people can say, this is how much we'll get to your door, you know, and this is where it's going. Let, let, and then you make the decision whether you let, are comfortable let, with that let, or let not. Let me make another statement. On the national level, the admin cost will, will, will be up to 15%. Because you have an office headquarters in London, you have an office in Glasgow. Don't come and tell me there's no admin. Okay, this number. On the international level, minimum will be 15, go up to 25%. Because you are holding international organization, coordination, communication, management, and others. Whoever tells you that, ask him to come and see me. Yeah. Okay. See, and actually be very honest until, you see, I was having this photo from one of the sheikhs in the, in the beginning of the, the mid-90s. Said, even if it costs you 50% to send the other 50% to the people because they are dying, you pay the 50%. You know what airdrops? Airdrop? Yeah, airdrop. Uh, airdrop by the planes, it's used in a very difficult circumstances. The cost is going up to 60, 70, 80%. You cannot just tell UN and others that they are wrong. No, yeah. people are dying. Yeah. And, and nobody can actually reach them. And are you, have you had the opportunity to say this to these charities and what is their oh, response? I've been saying it, but nobody's listening to me. Do they not listen? Because they're too narrow focused? It's, I don't want to judge them because okay. I have no time for them. Okay. If you want to listen to me, I have got more than 2,600 videos on my YouTube. Go and find. So, moving on a little bit is um, 
And the documentary also mentions that in, in probably a positive way, one of the people said, one of your weaknesses that you can't stop mm. and rest, you know, and despite people, most people would say, look, you know, Russia, Doctor, you've done lot, lots over the decades. Now's your time to rest and relax. Um, you're still traveling so much. I know you were in Turkey recently. You're going to Iraq in the next few days. Um, I mean, why why don't you sit back and rest now? In, in, you know, not in a arrogant way, but say, you know, my job is done. I've done and I've contributed. And I've put mechanisms. Now I can do my gardening, I'll relax and spend time at home. Why can't you do that? Our job is a never-ending story. If you work with people, it's a never-ending story. Some people can manage to do that and they retire. Few people, like yourself and the others, said no. Since Allah gave me the health, I'll give you the health, the vision, the experience, and the drive, go, carry on. You are needed. Because sometimes you go to an area which is like a flat tire, no knowledge at all. So when you drop some water into it, it becomes green. Sometimes you go to another area which is in a different stage. So you pass the information. We used to organize, uh, to organize some workshop called uh, 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 what do you call it? Experience trans- uh, exchange. And instead of hiring consultants, I go to human appeal. Can you come with me to train the Syrian or the Yemeni? And we, you, your organization can pay the ticket and we can put you in a room and ask your organization to give us your time. So he will come to talk about management from practical experience. When you get a consultant to do this, he will give you what's written in the textbook, measured by distances. But when somebody like you have been in this sector for 25, 30 years, you give him the fla- you give them the flavor of the technicality, technology, experience, mission, vision, and values. This was actually, we did it for about five, six years with the Syrian and the Yemeni and the Somali. Called it actually experience exchange. And people like Osman Mukbil, like Haruna Atallah, like Nasser, like others, used to go together to do a fundraising, management, accountability, and all these sort of things to the people. So you're sharing that wisdom, you're connecting people as well. That's right. Yeah. Now, we know from Islam that we should always try to achieve balance in our lives. Yes. Um, but the more that I study people who have achieved anything significant, I see that they have a life or periods of their life is imbalanced. Um, so when you consider work, family, spare time, what are your kind of thoughts on this? Is If you want to achieve anything significant, people have to make sacrifices. You can't. Can you maintain that balance of all of these aspects? It depends who is with you at home. It depends whom you choose. That's why when I said my wife was a chosen or God-given gift to me, without her, I could not have reached it. Could not have been sitting with you now. Okay? Couldn't have been sitting with me for two days or no, no, two, not two hours, I mean, 
Or Jazeera could not have come to me. Jazeera does not know my wife's name. But my wife is the unsung hero. You choose the wife to help you to uh, manage her kingdom while she is sending you as a family ambassador abroad. So you are representing the family which is managed not by you, but by your wife. But if how, we fail to do this, yeah. we'll never go anywhere. But how have you coped with those kind of missed family occasions, those kind of things with your children, your wife, etc. Them saying, actually, you should be here, we want you here, we need your time as well. Yeah, I think this is something that the the only one who can make it not an issue is your wife. Because she will be with the children uh, and she will be nurturing them. And when I grew up, I when I look back at this time, I feel pity that I did not, uh, I was not with them during this age. That's why I'm trying to sit down more with that, with my grandchildren, at least to be like a figurehead there. But that time, if you don't have an understanding wife, you have a divorce. Yeah. Okay. Do you? have any regrets in life? I wouldn't call it regret. I would call maybe missed opportunities. Okay. So, because failure means that you have tried, but you missed. If you say that, oh, I'm regretting I failed. No, because if you can bring this feeling of being uh, regretting all the time, you'll go to the, to the dark uh, tunnel. Okay. And since you are a psychiatrist, when I was put in jail in, uh, in Canada in 2007, or less than 24 hours, I was advised to take the Canadian to court because there was no uh, ground for this. I went to discuss with my doctors this kind of regretting and being. I was traveling with a team of 16, supposed to be traveling with a team of 16 to Africa. And we decided to make a case, okay, against uh, what happened. And the doctor told me, yes, you are psychologically broken. Well, on that day, and when I said yes, you know what happened to me? Headache, neck ache, back ache, blurring vision, dizziness, automatic. I was sitting in the family room, automatic. Oh my God, I went to this dark tunnel. Then I was telling my children, I'm not going to travel tomorrow. Omar, my son, and <laughs> daddy is not going to travel. He said, must be joking. He's... Then I sat down and I asked the driver, because I had some pocket money, tell him, take this pocket money, about two, three thousand dollars. And if I don't call you in the morning for five o'clock, 
take Brother Harun instead of me. And he can actually go to say salam to the people who are going actually to Africa. I woke up in the morning with a decision after making istikhara to go. I told you in the evening I had blurring vision. You are a psychiatrist. All these things which you cannot treat it with tablets or injections. I woke up in the morning. I took the telephone and said, Muhammad said, what? He said, come bring the car. I put my luggage and they went with the people for about two weeks. I came back cured because I did not surrender to my headache, backache, neckache, and to the advice of the doctors. I said, yes, we could have one, one million dollars. You know, we got, we got the evidence that there was a report written about myself. And this report was saying that Dr. Hani was she's doing so and so in this country, in this country, in this country. When we got the report from the government there, I was in the embassy of the country which wrote the report about me on that day. I went to the council general in London. What do you think? He was shocked. Said so you can take us to court. I'm, I told them not. People were actually torturing me. You stupid! You should have taken them to court. If I could have taken them to court, could have not had Islamic Relief Canada today. Islamic Relief Canada is eighteen million dollars. Okay. And you got it? Yes, yes. And just the last few questions. Uh, a few Dr. questions. What time is it now? We're nearly finished, inshallah. What time is it now? Um. 10.40. Oh, have to rush. Last few minutes. Um, do you have any routines or habits that have kept you close to Allah subhanahu and kept you humble and sincere in your intention? Because it can become very easy, I guess, to drift away. What's your, is there any kind of regular things or daily things or routines that have kept you connected with Allah subhanahu Recently, I have tried to maintain my daily Quran reading, trying to listen to sheikhs, scholars, about their opinions, trying to listen to Kari, actually, and try to write, and uh, trying to respond to people that even I don't know them. Somebody was writing to me, uh, sending me a message. He's not on my uh, list on the telephone about Muslim Ummah, what to do, civil society, from a different school of thought. I know definitely. I wrote him 15 points. Okay? And this keeps me going because you empty what's in there on the table. Yeah. And this keeps you going. When people start to ask you things, like, like I received a message this morning from a woman. I was in Bradford and she was from there. She said, I was there. I am from this country. You remember me? I said, call me anytime. This has just message to me. That means she did the effort. She made the effort to take my number from someone, to write to me, to remind me of herself. That is something. That let you to feel that you are having a value. 
So when you become easy approachable or easily approachable, isn't it? This keep building your morality and your strength. And so how, how do you relax? I mean, how would your... This makes me relax. District? And what, what makes you laugh? Because you're a very funny person and people love your talk because you're humorous and you're approachable. What, what makes it's, you it's laugh? It's a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I, I, I never, I never been trained in a, in a school to make jokes. Most of my jokes are silly ones. <laughs> but sometimes I crack English jokes. People the English don't understand it. <laughs> but they laugh at the yeah. end of the day. And to my two final questions, Dr. Hani, is one is, um, how would you like to be remembered? It's very scary. It's very scary because the time you leave, the time you will be exposed. And this is very scary that will Allah cover up my mistake or open it up for the public? Because none of us live without sins, as Jesus said, alayhi salam. So this is very, very scary. That's why I uh, I ask Allah if I die to make satr of what I've been doing in the dark room and nobody's seen me apart from you and the angels. The angels cannot reveal my mistakes. The only one who can reveal my mistakes publicly when I die, when I die or publicly when I stand up before him on the day of judgment. This is a problem. And my final question, if you were to meet the younger Dr. Hani in mm. his late teens, early 20s, or maybe just in the early 80s where he just started the summer relief, what would you say to him? I will tell him, do the same. But use the technology. Don't ever ignore the technology. But don't be used by the technology. Because I remember when Dr. Ahmad Wael was in Glasgow, came to Birmingham. We wanted, I believed in computer, but I'm very bad in using computer. I don't have any clue about the basic computer program. But I believe in computer. I believe in technology. I believe in what you call digital transformation. If you want me to invest, I believe in media. I believe in uh, in drama. I believe in research. But I cannot do it. You don't have to do everything yourself, but push towards it. Because there are tools of change-making process. They go back. Now, if I'm 25 years now or 35 years now starting, I will do the same, but using, not being used. By technology. And if people want to hear more from you or, you know, what, where, where can they hear about you? Where can they get your content Are you, in terms of on your online or YouTube? Where's the best place they can to go keep to up YouTube. to date with? I have in the YouTube more than 2,600 videos and lectures and workshops in Arabic and English. Some of them is five minutes, ten minutes. Some of them is three hours. If you want really... You know, good. I, I'm trying to keep it as a library. 
uh, I have a Facebook, but يعني, people who are actually doing, if they want to really have a substance, they can go to the YouTube. YouTube. Okay. Dr. Hani, it's been a real privilege and honor to spend a bit of time with you, and, and thank you for your honesty. And uh, I've learned a lot, and inshallah, may this be an inspiration. It certainly is for me and for other people. And please keep us all in your du'as, and may Allah continue to give you strength. Um, keep you straight on the straight path and also the vigor and the energy to continue to benefit Allah. the Ummah inshallah all of us inshallah thank you for asking me to be with you thank you for the high class snack no, it's not a snack breakfast it's, it's a proper breakfast but top uh, elite breakfast I don't use to have this Alhamdulillah. I'll thank my wife for that inshallah, inshallah. thank you very Take much